The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Stocks across Asia ease from nine-month highs despite hopes a U.S.-China trade deal will be signed by the end of May. Gucci helps Caring narrowly beat first-quarter sales forecasts even as growth at the fashion house cools, while the luxury group says Chinese demand for its brands is still strong. Pinterest prices its IPO above expectations at $19 per share, valuing the online image sharing company at more than $12 billion. Washington braces for the release of Robert Mueller's redacted report, the culmination of a two-year investigation into Russian election interference that has hung over Donald Trump's presidency. Good morning, everyone. We have uh, some corporate numbers crossing to kick off the day. Schneider Electric are posting their numbers uh, just before the Easter long weekend. And we have a first quarter revenue print of 6.31 billion euros. Uh, this is an increase of 5.9% organically. And uh, the company now backing its 2019 target. In terms of uh, FX, it's uh, flagging up that. It says there's an FX impact on its four-year 2019 levels at current rates of an adjusted EBITDA margin that should be around 10 basis points. So um, we have, uh, in terms of uh, the company's comments, it, say, it says it expects Western Europe to grow at a moderate pace. And uh, it is uh, basically uh, pointing to stronger growth in, in most of these main markets for China. It remains a growth market, uh, is what it's saying. So the company just giving us a few lines on what to expect. Julianne. Yes, it's uh, interesting they say that China remains a growth market in aggregate, though construction uh, could moderate in the coming quarters. And this is coming on the back of yesterday's raft of data, of course, um, where we got better than expected numbers out of China. But Schneider seems to be sounding a little bit of caution when it comes to the construction outlook there. Yeah, we're sort of seizing upon all of these report cards that we can get our hands on because the market has been given a sense that the first quarter was particularly rough, that we may have seen uh, a low point globally. So the report cards, what the C-suite's now seeing for various different regions from China, the Asia-Pacific region to Europe and the United States, quite key to, to formulate an opinion that uh, Q1 was the worst of it, that maybe there's economic growth ahead. And I think that's what markets have been trading on as well, where we've seen this uh, fairly strong rally since the start of this year. Juliana. Thanks very much, Karen. Well, we have indeed seen a strong rally since the start of the year. Yesterday, a slightly more muted picture stateside. We had a number of earnings come through across the sectors. Uh, more numbers from the financial space with Morgan Stanley coming out with a strong set of results. We also had Pepsi come out with a, a solid set of numbers. On the other hand, some downbeat earnings as well yesterday, weighing on sentiment a little bit. IBM and Bank of New York Mellon were a little bit more muted. Tech and consumer discretionary 
were the two sectors that have hit uh, record closes uh, yesterday, so hitting fresh highs there. Uh, but healthcare, the key lagger, down 2.9%, posting its worst day of 2019. So mixed picture on Wall Street yesterday and looking at the three major indices all ending a touch lower. Uh, S&P 500, the underperformer of the bunch, down about 23 basis points. Well, I mentioned tech hitting a fresh high yesterday. One of those uh, stocks sharply in focus, Qualcomm. Shares continued higher yesterday, th uh, uh, more than 12% more for Qualcomm, adding to the previous day's gains. This, of course, comes on the back of the resolution to their long-running dispute with Apple. The feedback from the analyst community has been overwhelmingly positive in terms of their reviews for what this means for Qualcomm. Uh, the, the general consensus seems to be that Apple really blinked first. They realized that they needed to, in order to get a 5G phone on the market in 2020, they were going to need Qualcomm's help. So the Qualcomm investors here are getting a, a quite a big boost from that news. Let's take a look at commodities markets. Uh, we are seeing WTI and Brent trade a touch higher this morning, but this follows a pullback yesterday. WTI traded down about 45 basis points. Brent pulled back about 14 basis points. Both WTI and Brent are currently in correction territory, down about 17% from their 52-week highs. Gold, meanwhile, the gold price has hit a fresh 2019 low yesterday, down about 1.4% for the week. And now this morning, we are seeing gold trade down a little bit more down about 12 basis points. Let's take a look at the Asian markets overnight. Remember yesterday, the big focus for the session was that raft of economic data coming out of China. We saw some fairly muted moves, uh, largely because that strength was telegraphed. We already had a good indication of where those China numbers would come out. This morning, we are seeing a pullback across the Asian region, but no massive movers. Shanghai Composite down about 0.23%. The Nikkei 225 down 0.8%. Uh, investors looking forward to European economic data coming out later this morning in the form of manufacturing PMIs. And on that note, let's take a look at European opening calls. We are looking at a negative start here in Europe with all four of the major regions pointing to a down, a down start to trade. The DAX looking at a 24% 24-point dip. And the FTSE MIB over in Italy looking at a 37-point dip. And as I said, the key focal point for European investors will be those flash manufacturing PMI numbers out later this morning. Juliana, we're watching those very, very closely for the mood music here in Europe. Elsewhere, Chinese officials are eyeing late May for a potential Trump-Xi trade summit, according to CNBC sources. The time frame is reportedly preferable because the U.S. president is expected to be on a state visit to Japan, which aligns with Beijing's desire to hold a summit away from U.S. soil. That's as the Wall Street Journal reports on a new draft time frame for the final rounds of negotiation. Eunice Yun filed this report from Beijing. We're in the final stretch of a trade deal, or so we can hope. Overnight, a senior Trump administration official outlined a rough schedule of the negotiations, which is meant to end in a trade deal sometime at the end of May or in early June. Under the draft schedule for the week of April 29th, the USTR's Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin would travel to Beijing. The following week, China's Vice Premier Liu He would head to Washington. And after the two sides wrangle over the text and legal language, they hope to have an agreement that can be signed during a presidential ceremony by as early as Memorial Day 
or May 27th. But there is a lot more work to be done, raising skepticism that the deal could come at a big cost. This is what former U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew told CNBC. I am skeptical that there are going to be the permanent kinds of systemic changes uh, that we all would like to see. But I actually think incremental progress would be a good thing as well. Um, I think the problem is it's coming at a high price. The mode of engagement that we now have with China, but also with our closest allies like Europe and Canada, is creating this conflict between the United States and the world, causing uncertainty and, and I think, slowing down the, uh, uh, in the, the, the confidence that you need to have sustained growth. Even so, officials like Mnuchin are optimistic the two sides are closing the gap on the tougher issues. For an enforcement mechanism, the two are discussing setting up enforcement offices, though there isn't a lot of detail on how that would work. A provision to prevent currency manipulation is on the table, but the removal of tariffs will be tricky. The two sides are still apparently very far apart on the timing of the removal and which tariffs should be lifted. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. Meanwhile, the U.S. trade deficit hit an eight-month low in February as imports from China plunged over 20 percent. The overall U.S. trade shortfall of $49.4 billion marked the second straight month of declines and surprised analysts who had expected the gap to widen. Now, President Trump is expected to meet with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the White House next week. Bilateral talks are expected to focus on trade negotiations. Japanese Finance Minister Taro Aso will also hold discussions with U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, according to Reuters. Now, Washington reportedly wants to include a clampdown on currency manipulation as part of a new trade deal being negotiated with Tokyo. Japan has been criticized for keeping the yen weak to boost exports, although it insists it is just trying to raise inflation. Japanese manufacturing contracted for the third month in a row in April as trade tensions and sluggish demand continued to weigh on the economy. Japan's latest manufacturing PMI numbers rose to 49.5, a nudge upwards from last month thanks to a pickup in hiring, but still below that 50-point mark. On Wednesday, official Japanese trade data showed export orders falling at their fastest rate in nearly three years. Andrew Jackson's joined us, head of fixed income and lead portfolio manager at Ermi's Investment Management. Andrew, good morning. Welcome. Morning. I want to ask you about trade uh, because we kick off the morning with uh, now another summit in sight after having a couple of various summits in sight previously. What would you expect this time around? Are we, are we almost done? Are we almost at the end of the road? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is is marginal improvements. I think both sides will want to be able to walk away and say they've they've had success. I think China need to move, and I think that Mr. Trump needs to come back to the U.S. and say I've made some progress. I don't think it's going to be the massive shift that many people had hoped for at the outset, uh, and I certainly think it will be covered in spin. I think it's going to happen reasonably soon, and I think the markets need it to happen reasonably soon because it feels like we've baked in a positive resolution now. Let's just get into a little bit more because one commentator was describing the market at the moment as being almost in hiatus. Everybody's waiting out for confirmation that Q1 really was that bleak period that we had for 2019, that it's going to be much firmer, stronger from here, and some of that down to the mood music around what happens with the trade agreement between the US and China. Do you think we're going to see a fundamental change in markets to the upside if there is a trade deal, if there's you know, pen to paper on a deal? Well, it'd be hard to see that happening in fixed income markets. There's not much further that we can go. I'm, 
iTrax crossover, our high yield index in Europe's trading inside 250 basis points. We rarely get to those kind of levels. More than half of European high yield corporates can now borrow for, le for less than 2% per annum. That's an incredibly low level. We've been driv driven in this last phase by technicals, demand far outstripping supply. And those technicals are supported by the huge balance of negative yielding assets, the 10 trillion of assets. But I think that investors are getting more cautious. So I think the path up from here is tough to see. The thing I'm most worried about is the absence of things to worry about, which is the reason why maybe the pain trade is for us to go tighter in fixed income and higher in equity markets. But you know, I think we've come a hell of a long way and, and going much further from here rapidly is, I think, unlikely. Where is that demand coming from in the fixed income markets? It's coming from end investors. Pension funds have seen a really, really great ride for the last five years. They're sitting on almost close to fully funded balance sheets, and therefore they don't want to take a huge amount of risk. And so they're reducing their equity allocation and looking to increase their allocation to fixed income at the same time that there aren't really many assets that you can own that pay you anything. Mm. And therefore, the number of assets that actually pay you anything shrinking means that everyone is fighting over them. Uh, we've seen a couple of deals over the last couple of weeks that don't feel particularly nice to own, but the demand for them has been insatiable. Um, we've turned down several deals recently just on price alone. On that point, uh, I was reading through some of your your notes, and you made the point that banks have become a lot more aggressive uh, and on terms and pricing when it comes to new issues. And should investors be stepping away from these new issues? I, th I think investors should be. Whether they can is really a reflection of how much they've owned of this rally year to date. And that that was something that uh, the equity guys were talking about earlier this morning. That there are a number of people out there looking like they haven't owned this rally sufficiently to be able to be conservative now. And that's a tough position to find yourself in, I think. When you mentioned uh, some uh, offerings coming to market, I mean, one that jumps out was this $85 billion bond offering from um, the Saudis mm. around Aramco. That was a, a fairly huge one coming to market. Yep. Just one example, and that's by jurisdiction where possibly investors might have had some transparency concerns. Uh, what, uh, what ones concern you? Is it about jurisdiction or is it about duration? It's partly about jurisdiction, it's partly about credit quality, it's partly about the fact that we're really getting those names that haven't been able to come prior to now. If you have been able to come, you would have come in 2018. And we're kind of getting the stub, the names that don't really, the, either the names that need to refinance regularly and those names we look at, but the names that have taken a long time to come to the market and are finally coming now, not looking too great. That's a good thing, though, on the flip side, isn't it, for some of those ambitions? I mean, uh, the, the case I cite around the Saudis, I mean, they want to yep. transform their country into uh, a futuristic state, yep. not just reliant on energy. That's great news, isn't it, for the yep. ambitions of some governments? Uh, there are definitely positives in that. Definitely positives in that. And, and we are seeing corporates come to the market, to public markets, rather than doing this privately, in the last 12 months that wouldn't have come prior to the last 12 months, which means that we're getting the opportunity to chat to them, talk to them about our ESG concerns, talking to them about transparency. And I think most of them are listening. The problem will be the ones who don't listen are still able to get their deals away. And that is worrisome for markets in the long term. All right. Well, we'll leave this here. Coming back for more shortly with Andrew Jackson, head of fixed income and lead portfolio manager, Hermes Investment Management.
Now, North Korea has tested a new type of guided weapon, according to state media. The move comes after denuclearization talks with President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un collapsed last February. NBC News' Andrea Mitchell has the details. Kim Jong-un's state news agency announcement that Kim has supervised what they call a test firing of a new tactical guided weapon. The question is, would it violate his promise to President Trump in Hanoi? He said the testing will not start. He said that he's not going to do testing of rockets or missiles or uh, anything having to do with nuclear. The U.S. military did not track the test in real time, indicating to experts it could be a short-range battlefield weapon flying under 500 meters, not a ballistic missile that would violate U.N. resolutions. If true, it comes less than a week after Kim said he is open to a third summit with President Trump. The president tweeted in response, our personal relationship remains very good. Perhaps the term excellent would be even more accurate and that a third summit would be good. Meantime, on the calendar today, April Eurozone flash composite PMIs. That's expected to strengthen slightly, but the manufacturing portion of the print is expected to come in below that crucial 50 level for the third month in a row. Now, German manufacturing is expected still to be sluggish, coming in at the 45 mark. March retail sales for both the UK and US are forecast to be stronger. So we're going to be watching the wires very, very closely. But in the meantime, it's almost Easter, Juliana, and you've got some numbers from a very crucial chocolate company or sweet company. Yes, uh, they tend to time their releases quite well. Valentine's Day, I was there last time now, just ahead of Easter. Did you not Ness get an invite to go back? No, sad, very sadly. I look forward to going to, uh, in the summertime, though, where it's <laughs> quite nice in Vivet. Uh, well, coming out of Vivet this morning uh, with Nestle, they have come out with a trading update. Q1 organic growth of 3.4%, with continued strong real internal growth of 2.2%. Pricing increased to 1.2% with significant improvement in Brazil and the United States. In terms of total reported sales for the quarter, they increased by 4.3% to 22.2 billion Swiss franc. Uh, the, that compares to 21.3 billion for the same period last year, so quite an increase there. Uh, they, their portfolio management remains fully on track. They say pricing increased to 1.2% with significant improvement in Brazil and United States, as I mentioned. Uh, in terms of their strategic review, and remember Nestle is in the process of shifting their, their portfolio, uh, the Nestle Skin Health and Heritage Chicouterie uh, are expected to be completed by mid and late 2019. Full guidance for the year for 2019 has been confirmed. Uh, so it seems as though everything on track when it comes to their strategic review uh, and a fairly solid set of numbers when it comes to Q1 sales. Yeah, stunning performance in the overall basket of food and beverage stocks. Uh, I've been noting uh, the increase we've seen, almost like a sugar rush, straight line up. Wonder what happens from there and whether these numbers are enough to confirm that trend for the company. Plenty coming up on the show, uh, including bank earnings may have beaten expectations, but pressures are already showing. We're going to delve a little bit deeper into the forecast for 2019 after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cbc.com, iTunes, Spotify or Google Play to have a listen and download today's episode. Of course, they're perfect if you're going driving for the long weekend. Uh, meantime, for our podcast listeners, stick around for some more. 
Chairman Kane says he will not withdraw his name from consideration for a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Kane said he was, quote, very committed to being vetted for the role despite signs that a potential nomination would not be approved by the U.S. Senate. Now, Kane stressed that new voices are needed at the Fed. And J.P. Morgan has appointed its head of card services, Jennifer Piepsek, as its new chief financial officer after promoting its current CFO, Marion Lake, tipped as a successor to chief executive, Jamie Dimon, who will now lead, consum will now lead consumer lending. Morgan Stanley beat profit numbers as uh, it was reporting the latest of uh, many of the banks to come to markets. And, uh, of course, we've been tracking all the numbers very, very closely from uh, the likes of uh, City, uh, Wells, uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, but the company beat profit and revenue estimates in the first quarter. The bank generated $2.4 billion in quarterly profit thanks to better than expected results uh, in its wealth management unit, would you believe, and also fixed income trading units. So we've got uh, some positive earnings reports uh, right across the earnings season for you. CBC's Bob Pisani uh, says warning signs, though, may be starting to show. Here filed this report from the New York Stock Exchange. We're still in the early innings of earnings season, but so far there's been good and bad news. The good news is companies are continuing to report earnings above expectations. It's the big story of this earnings season. Analysts fearing a global economic slowdown in 2019 dramatically cut earnings estimates in December of last year. But the meltdown they feared hasn't happened. And now it's obvious they cut too much. Here's the bad news. There's a very large disconnect between earnings and revenues, and that's likely a sign that cost pressures are starting to show up. Higher wage costs, higher raw material costs, higher transportation costs are all weighing on margins in some sectors. The S&P 500 is expected to post a year-over-year -year decline in earnings this quarter, but revenues are still expected to grow about 5%. That's a little strange. This discrepancy is very large. And higher costs are likely the main reason. In a recent survey of 23 companies that have reported first quarter earnings, FactSet noted that higher costs consistently showed up in earnings calls as among the most cited fear factors. More than 60% blaming a strong dollar, but 40% blamed higher wages, 40% blamed higher raw material costs. Truckers and logistic firm J.B. Hunt cited increased driver wages and higher recruiting costs as a negative impact on their earnings. Costco, too, said headwinds from last year's wage hikes were prevalent, and FedEx mentioned higher inflation affecting transportation costs. So where's all this going? Higher wages are certainly good news for the American worker, that's for sure. But that and other costs are clearly putting pressure on profit margins. So right now, profit margins for the S&P 500 are at 10.7% in the first quarter. That's the lowest margin since the fourth quarter of 2017, when it was 10.5%. I'm Bob Pisani, CNBC Business News in New York. I want to come back to Andrew Jackson, who has been with us talking about credit. He's head of fixed income and lead portfolio manager at Hermes Investment. You've been spooking us a little bit about the credit market and the dynamics at this point. But I want to just come back to when there could be a problem, because we've been here a couple of times since the financial crisis. It's not regular to have credit spreads tightened so much. However, we've not had a problem in recent history. So now as we have a Fed effectively on hold, very yep. dovish central banks, an economy that it's not growing at the same pace, but it's still growing, we hope, for the rest of this year. Where's the problem? Is there going to be a default issue where those who have stampeded into credit actually get caught holding the bag? Yeah, first response is yes, there will be some defaults, but probably not the flurry that gets us all worried. Um, in fact, the thing I'm most worried about is the absence of things to worry about. 
Um, trade war appears to be going away to a certain extent. Um, we are less worried about rates. The one thing I think that we might see back end is cost price and wage price inflation having an impact on operating margins, which can in the long term have an impact on the profitability and then in the end the cash flow of some of these corporates that we're lending to. So their leverage building up in the system might be the way in which we get captured. So more and more leverage gets injected into these high yield corporates because the market has an insatiable demand for high yield paper. And then when cost price inflation comes through, we start to see cash flow going negative and immediately we have that reaction function that credit always has, which is we don't just wait until something's defaulted, but we can actually look forward to defaults occurring in the future, jack up the rates at which we will lend to these guys and they can't refinance. Um, but I think that's quite some way away. And, you know, as a credit guy, I, I love coming in, making people scared and miserable. <laughs> and I'm finding it hard to do that at the moment. No, there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines still. And earlier this week, we heard from the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, Larry Fink weighing in, saying people are still underinvested. Yep. Should people be putting their money into credit from cash at this point? Well, I think people are underinvested or have been underinvested. And I think credit is a relatively safe place to be. It always is a relatively safe place to be. But I think it's harder to find things to invest in. I spoke to a former colleague who actually was finding it so hard to find things to invest in that he didn't want investors to give them any more money. That never happens in credit. Um, I think we also, well, one of the sort of snapshot onto how difficult it is to invest is European CLOs are trying to ramp and finding it impossible to do so. So we're looking at European CLOs, roughly 10 billion has been printed year to date roughly 3 billion of that still to ramp. So there's 3 billion of cash waiting to be invested once somebody brings them a deal. But actually, they're gonna have to turn down some deals. They're gonna have to turn down some of the stuff that they don't like in order to look like they've got some kind of credit discipline. It's a, it's a tough market. It's definitely, it doesn't feel like a vintage that long-term is gonna be a great vintage for us as credit investors. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.